this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by Industrial Device Investments. One of the ways to sell your business is through a minority or majority recapitalization. What's that? Well, it's where a private equity group or PE firm buys your business. You get to take some of the money off the table and keep your job running your company as CEO and shareholder. Now, the problem with a lot of these so-called PE deals is that the investor not always, but in many cases, is a money guy or gal with no clue how to run a business. And that's why industrial device investments is so different. They are operators, just like you, and they understand what it takes to build a business. The firm was founded by a guy named John Dalton. Look him up on LinkedIn. He's an engineer and spent years at GE and Black & Decker before becoming a full-time investor. Here's the thing. You want maximum value for your business and a bright future for your employees. And that's where Industrial Device Investments comes in. They speak your language, not the jargon of the finance guys. And they invest their own money and don't answer to outside shareholders. An interesting option for sure. Visit idinvest.net to find out more. That's idinvest.net. Check them out. My next guest, Kate Nolan and Kimberly Cacabo, founded Grace by Grit, which they sold to Highlight earlier this year. This was a sports performance brand, fitness apparel, specifically focused on women athletes. And, you know, Kate and Kimberly do a great job of talking about what it took to build this company, build the brand, how to raise money for an apparel brand, which is a very capital intensive, as you might imagine, business. Some of the common obstacles you'll face. We'll hear a little bit about something called Start engine take a listen for that and how you can make your customers into investors which is a pretty cool piece it goes into detail on how apparel companies branded apparel companies are valued and i found that fascinating a fascinating conversation uh here to tell you the rest of the story is kate nolan and kimberly cacabo kate nolan Kimberly Kikabo, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks Thank for, you having, for us. having us. This is great because usually we just have one person and I've got uh, two here. So this is, uh, this is fantastic. So thanks both of you guys for coming on to talk a little bit about Graced by Grit. I love the name, by the way. Uh, how did you come up with the name? Give me the backstory. How did this company come about? Well, Kate and I were training together. She was actually my trainer. She's what were you training trainer. for? I was training for a triathlon and uh, it was a, well, it was a triathlon in honor of Chelsea King, which was a local girl in town who um, sadly was uh, murdered during a run. And her mom had always wanted, uh, had said that she always wanted to do a triathlon. And so I was training for a run in her honor and we had a bunch of women that were doing it unfortunately i decided to do the triathlon with a short amount of time so i needed someone to get my running up to speed get my transitions up to speed and convince me not to ride my beach cruiser for the biking part of it that would be me by the way got it got it got it it. and so give me the backstory in the name so So, as you go kate 
I'll go. I'll go. Sorry, you're going to find this. We like to, uh, we each like to tell the story. Like but an old married couple. Yes, it, we are in many, many ways. We work together a lot of years now, but um, we ended up, Kimberly hired me. I was helping her train and, and it really, we what we were talking about was the clothes that we were wearing, what worked, what didn't, what we like to see women in. I assumed Kimberly was using these conversations as a distraction tactic so that she didn't have to run as hard, um, which I think I was. she actually was doing that. Yes. But it, it was interesting really at the time to talk about, you know, what was out there in the market. We were obviously seeing more and more women. This was back in 2010. We were seeing more and more women that were wearing athletic apparel to go get their kids from school and to go to coffee, not necessarily just to work out. And so saw that the market was really growing. And we talked about, you know, a lot of different things were around those runs, not only what we were wearing or what other women were wearing, but also about our life story. We have very different life experience and a bit of an age gap between the two of us. She's Um, being generous. (laughs) just a little age gap, but we, you know, obviously very different life experience, but we felt that we shared a lot actually in common in terms of how we viewed the world and that both of us had gone through moments in our life that were particularly difficult. So these gritty moments that really had defined both of us and given us our grace and this strength that we had. So we, you know, when we, four years later talked about actually creating a company, um, because we saw that the market opportunity was still there. Uh, I was at a pivot point in my life of trying to figure out what my next step was for my career. Kimberly thought she was potentially going to be retiring, (laughs) but had an urge to, to dive into, I think another project and another business at the time, little do we know what that would would take to actually do it. But we talked about, you know, what was that shared piece that we had that would resonate with other women and resonate with the women that we wanted uh, the products to be sold to. And it was these tough moments in their life that really had defined them so that your grit becomes your grace. And so therefore you're graced by grit and that the clothes really represented the armor that you wear to maybe get through tough times as you're working out, which often women turn to exercise when they're struggling as a healthy outlet output. Um, but what we really found was that it really did resonate with who our customer was and who we wanted the brand to represent. And so the clothes themselves were workout clothes. Like I, I'm from Toronto where Lululemon is a Canadian company. So every, every, every person on the planet, it seems like is wearing Lululemon gear to work out and to pick up the kids from school and so forth. Is it similar to that apparel where it's sort of sporty stuff you could also wear to pick up the kids. Is that the kind of brand? Yeah, yes. We were a little more focused on athletes and performance. So mm. our stuff looked great when you went to pick up your kids, but while you were exercising, it performed. And that was one of the problems that I had when I was training with Kate. I had that brand on and it looked great when I was static. It looked great when I was getting coffee. But the minute I started to run, you could tell I was 50 years old. So our product has a bit more compression and uh, is really built for the athlete. Fantastic. So you built, so take me through, uh, it sounds like the branding of this company was a big deal. The story, the backstory, it was a big deal. What about the actual product itself? Like, were you buying, specking it, designing it in California and having it, you know, made in offshore? How did you physically kind of make the product? 
Well, for us, you know, we, we definitely, um, the branding was first and foremost, we knew that we had to have a strong brand out of the gate looking at, you know, when, when this was all happening in 2013 was when we incorporated, we knew that to be a player in the game, we needed to have strong branding. So that was what we first invested in was to have strong branding. Um, then we focused on obviously what we wanted the clothes to look like, to feel like the types of fabrics that we were going to use and where we manufactured. We both wanted to manufacture in the United States. And when we talked to industry experts, they all said to us, well, that's really nice, but you're not going to find the quality here in the States. You need to go overseas. So we actually did our first batch of apparel in China. And did and India and India. Yep. And manufactured overseas. And while the quality was great, we struggled with obviously the amount of time it took to get the products, to get the samples, the back and forth and the communication. And as a very small company at the time, just trying to get out that first line, we really were struggling with the amount that you had to produce, not knowing how the market would actually react to it. And so we simultaneously produced products at a factory here in San Diego uh, for samples. And we had a group of women run in those products for a half marathon. And the feedback was incredible, not only in the quality of uh, the product that was sewn in the United States, but also in the details of the design and the fit and the functionality of everything. And so we went one step further and said, you know what, for this next batch, we're going to start to manufacture here in the United States. So we brought it all back and we continued with our business after that, manufacturing everything here stateside. You know, when I think about a business like this, I've, I've always wondered how on earth do you make money? Because it's so expensive to get a customer to buy the stuff. It's so expensive to have it manufactured and shipped. Even if you're shipping it locally in the United States, you're shipping it to customers. Your business model was to go direct through a website. You didn't sell it through retail stores. Is that right? Maybe talk through that decision and some of the economics of the business. Sure. Uh, we'll both talk about it. I'll give you first the background. I mean, for us, we wanted to be direct to consumer. What we found was our customers loved the interaction with us because in the beginning, we'd have these fit shops or trunk shows in people's homes around the U.S. to get them enthusiastic about the brand brand and try it. And each customer brought more customers. I mean, we're making products for women. Women like to tell other women what's great. So we would have these parties. What we found was um, people wanted to attend these parties. So we ended up opening a retail store in Solana Beach and had an additional five pop-ups over the life of the brand. And what was great about those, it was destination shopping. They could come, they could try things on. And then the next purchase they made, they often made from home. Got it. So you use the trunk shows and the pop-ups and the retail store to to introduce people to the brand. What is, I guess, retail stores have now become this kind of glorified brochure for the online store, right? Because people repurchase through the web. Is that Was that the business model? Yes, exactly. Exactly. And we could speak directly to our customer that way too. So once they attended a fit shop or a pop-up shop, we acquired their email address and we could talk directly to them. So we knew all of the products that they'd purchased. We could tell them whether there was other products that were like those or similar or new launches or events that were in their area or even we built an influencer program that had over 400 women in it that 
were all over the country. And so it would be an opportunity for those women to meet up, to help us market the brand, to attend events, and also to get their community engaged with following us online through social media. And we'd highlight often many of these women through our blog and through our uh, content that we created via marketing. And it was often, I mean, more often than not, anything that we sent out in a newsletter on our homepage slider uh, was actual user-generated content. So it was our our own um, customers or influencers that were sending us high-resolution images that we would then repurpose. Who are your influencers? Who are these 400 influencers? Athletes, um, yoga instructors, people who within their sphere had influence over other women's purchasing decisions. What did they get out of being an influencer? They got a discount on the product. Um, they often would receive product to test for us too. So hmm. once they filled out their profile for us, we would know the activities that they performed in or classes that they taught. And so we would actually send them. So let's say, for example, when was a golfer, when we were trying to create a golf skirt, we would send her a prototype and have her wear it and give us true feedback to the fit and the functionality, what she would change, how she would make it better or different. And then we use that in our next you know, fitting session that we had to make those changes. And so our influencers were a huge gift to the brand to actually build an authentic brand, but also that we took direct feedback from these women that were wearing it and wearing it every single day to make it better. Right. And we, oh, sorry. I just wanted to add that we used our influencers for our advertisements and most of our collateral were our customers wearing our clothes. It often wasn't a paid model. And as it turns out, the models we did pay early on became our customers and we're still purchasing right to the end. You know, I'm glad you brought up the end. I wonder when you first started thinking about exiting Grace by Grit. Well, at the very beginning, <laughs> yeah. actually, that was, we had a plan all along that we were intending to be acquired by a bigger brand that was like-minded to ours. So that was, we had that exit strategy mapped out from the very beginning when we wrote our business plan. I find that fascinating because in hearing you guys speak, it, it feels like a, 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 a very, a passion driven business, a business that, that, that you felt very sort of attached to personally and it, it, you know, part, certainly part of your, your own personal ex- life experience. Um, I find it fascinating that, that your intent was to kind of start and, and sell it right from the start. Well, our intent was to partner with a big company so that we could grow it to where it needed to go. Because, you know, two women starting in Solana Beach, it's very difficult for women to get capital. And we knew that we were going to come up against some log jams. We just didn't realize how many and how frequently that would be. But we knew that we needed someone to help us make this uh, a big brand. We had engaged, passionate, loyal customers who wanted more. And we wanted to be able to provide them more. So we started with that right out of the box. You know, why not just go work for Nike? If that was something you wanted to do, why not go work inside a big company and and be an entrepreneur and, and design? Could, could you not have sort of you know, scratch this itch in a different way. No, 
Yeah, no, I don't think either of us wanted to work for anybody else. And I think truly we saw that there was a niche that had not been um, marketed to. And in particular, the age group that we were going after tended to be a little bit older than a lot of the bigger brands. And the women that we focused on were women that were, you know, we say between 35 and 55, but you know, there was obviously their peripheral, of course, women that were younger and women that were older, but really within that niche was, was unique in that we weren't seeing a lot of marketing happen for that population. And there, we weren't seeing the kind of products that we felt would be fantastic for that age group where it would have the compression that you would want as you were aging and the performance where you could literally take a run and then go pick your kids up from school. And you know, your clothes were dry versus having that wet set, you know, soggy, bra after a yoga class and you're running around feeling cold. We, we just weren't seeing it out there. And I think we both had a burning desire to make it our own. Yes. And we didn't want it to take 20 years. We didn't want to have to convince someone of the quality of fabrics and the quality of fit and the style. So we knew that to bring our vision to fruition, we had to start it ourselves. So what we did initially is we went and found the most luxurious fabric from Italy and we got the best um, fit models and technical specialists to help us create clothing that fit women, fit real women. And that was something we didn't feel we would get in a big company. We knew we wanted this product for us. We wanted it for our friends and we wanted it for other women our age because we were an underserved market. It's hard to go and buy the clothing that looks great on a 16 year old when you're 30 to 50 years old your body has changed a little bit and you need things but you're still an athlete and you still want to perform i'm reminded of my wife telling me i i I came down in a cardigan sweater the other day and she said honey you've entered your carlsberg years have you ever seen those commercials (laughs) yes Yes. (laughs) it was like it was hit me right between the eyes it was the uh it was the the fact that just to your point eventually we all have to grow up and and yes and enter our carlsberg i guess that's what guys do go ahead yeah, yeah, but for us, it wasn't wearing cardigans. We're not quite ready for that. <laughs> what are we you are, saying? I, oh, I like a cardigan, cardigan every yeah, once in a while, I will like, say. Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> I Appreciate like cardigans it. on men, too. Oh, that's even better. There you go. Yeah. But for us, what we wanted was something that uh, made the 30 to 50-year-old woman look good, feel good, feel strong, so she could perform perform her best so she could do a triathlon, run a race, climb a mountain, ski downhill, whatever it was that was our athlete's passion. We wanted to provide clothes that made the woman feel like she could do it better. How did you uh, raise the startup capital to fund this business? What was the capital structure like raising the money? Friends and family. We reached out to uh, everyone we knew and we got capital to start it. And then we went and went through a series A and a series B. And, and sort of how much money did you raise through those various um, funding rounds? Oh, Kimberly, I don't know if you want to answer. I th- we raised about 1.7 million, I think, all in and I'm give or take. At this point, I can get that final number here. I can even pull it up on my computer while we're talking to make sure I'm accurate. But yeah, we raised a lot of money <laughs> given given what it, uh, you know, how long we were in business. But in the grand scheme of things, when you look at what a lot of other brands are doing now to raise money to, to start their business, it was actually pennies compared to that. And especially with what we did with that capital. 
What what sort of lessons could you impart for our listeners about you know the thinking behind either you know going because a lot of our listeners are, are, are bootstrapping their companies right they're not raising money certainly not a b rounds they're 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 doing their best to 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 run their company through cash flow so i'd be curious to know from you how you decided to raise money and why you decided to raise money and 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 some of the 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 challenges that you faced in raising money uh, well, I'll start and Kate jump in. But in the beginning, we knew that the brand was going to be very important, both the name and the structure and the target. So we spent money on our branding. It took us a while to come to a name that we felt really um, encapsulated what we believed about each other and about the brand and about our demographic. And we wanted a visual that also told that story. So we spent money on branding in the beginning, and then we spent money on creating quality product. So our first round was to create great product, create the brand, and make sure that it was something that would resonate with our customers. And then we used that, actually, that model in all of our subsequent raises. How much equity did you have to give up? in order to raise this, the friends and family, the A and B, right? Like what were you left with on a percentage basis by the time you actually exited? I think as founders, we were both left with about 12%. So you so give up a lot of equity, but that, that we knew that going into it, there was never, uh, that was not a surprise to either one of us. And because we went about our business knowing that we would have to raise money, I mean, you can't just manufacture product without money to pay for the fabrics ahead of time, to pay for the factories, to pay for all that goes into it. And then your employees that are working and all of that, you, it, it would just, it would be very difficult. And so we knew that going into it, that that would be part of it. And the idea was that we would get it big enough that that payout would be better than if we had nothing at all meaning no company at all <laughs> because we couldn't do it without the capital you got and we'll get into the exit in a in a moment but you ran grace by grid independently now of course you're running it as part of a, a, a larger company you ran it for five years when you think about the economic trade-off of of starting a business versus continuing on in your, your previous careers. Uh, was it a trade-off to start Grace by Grid or, or did you wor- end up financially better ahead having, having started the company? Do you know what I'm asking? I'm, you know, a lot of people start companies to get rich or to make a lot of money. Uh, it doesn't sound like that was your primary motivator, but I'd be curious to know, did you take a haircut? It, did, it, did, it, did you sacrifice financially to, to, to start and ultimately run Grace by Grid? Yes, we did uh, take a haircut and we sacrificed. I mean, we sacrificed time with our families. We sacrificed um, the the cost of starting the company. But our goal from the beginning was to make money with this business because we felt that there was a strong market. We weren't doing it uh, just to make sure women had clothes that they looked and feel felt good in. We knew that that market would yield cash. So our goal from the beginning was to make money. Uh, It was a lot of sacrifice of, of both time and money, but it was so incredible. The team we built, the engaged customers, it was an unbelievable experience. 
So what was the trigger to want to sell? Because a lot of people, of course, would 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 write it out for another 10 or 20 years, given what a success it had been on the short amount of time. Why sell? What, what, what was the trigger event? We wanted to grow it. And it was difficult for us to raise money to take the business to the next level. We could keep producing and inch our way up, but there's no way to get scale unless we had... 10 to $15 million invested in the company for us to really penetrate the, the large competitors. And when we realized it would be difficult to do that, we knew it was time to find a strategic partner. Why not stay small, though, and, and just have a small community of athletes and influencers, uh, you know, stay within yourself? Why, what, was, what was not appealing about that approach? It's a lot of work. <laughs> it's day in, day out. You know, when it's your own, obviously that that grind for five years is is pretty intense. But beyond that, I think we both felt like the message of what Greased by Grit really represented was something that we did want to become bigger beyond just the clothes we were making, but really that message. And I think obviously with everything going on culturally, there's a lot of relevance to that, particularly for women to find that power within to stand up for themselves. And, you know, that failure can actually often be your biggest strength if you learn from it. And so we felt that that was something that we had to continue to pursue. And we actually looked at different options. It wasn't just looking to be acquired. It was looking to potentially um, partner with other like-minded brands to hit a revenue point that would be more appealing to venture capitalists or private equity, there seems to be that magic number of $10 million in revenue and we were not there yet. But if we thought, we thought, oh, if we join forces with other like-minded brands, potentially getting there faster uh, would be more attractive. And so we looked at that option and then serendipitously ran into the founder of Hylete, which is the company that did acquire us. And the conversation started actually at an event in uh, Orange County, California for fundraising that we were there looking for investors and ran into him and he's the CEO and founder. And the conversation was sort of like a light bulb went off for both of us of this, you know, this actually could be our opportunity, knowing that it was a brand, Hylete's a brand that was focused primarily on men's apparel. They had a very small women's line, but that their focus had been on, on this men's apparel for their brand because it was founded by men. So that made sense. But they knew that there was such an opportunity if they could get into the women's sector. But how did they do that? They needed experts in that space. And after our five years of experience, we definitely qualify as experts. So tell me about the event. It was a fundraising event. I'm not sure what I've never been to one of those. Tell me about those. It's called the Roth Capital Conference, and it is a place for both private and public companies to present their businesses. We were not presenters. We were in the audience. We were listening to people trying to figure out the right company for us to partner with. And as it turns out, it was another attendee. Uh, Ron Wilson of Hylete, he's an incredible operator. And when we talked to him about his business, because he is from the beginning has been a digitally native business and building what is a, that? What does that mean, Kimberly? Digital all, online, all online. Everything's online. There's not a single storefront. There's not a single pop-up shop. There's not a single event that you can go to to find them. Although they did some events to initially get out there, but everything is online now. 
Great. Keep going on, Ron. Uh, you, you were saying, Kimberly? Oh, so Ron, he's just so smart and he has years of experience in this business. And when we talked about the direction each of our companies were headed, we realized there was just such a symbiosis between the companies. Uh, and that led to more talks. And now Kate is uh, an executive at Highly. Tell me more about uh, how big you got the company. So it's 2017, I guess, the end of 2017 when you were at the Roth conference. That's correct. So yeah. what, how, how Actually, big? it was early 2018. It was oh, that's March right. It was March 2018. Okay. Right. So earlier this year, how how big a company is, is Grace by Grit at this point in terms of either revenue or number of employees? So at that, in March of 2018, we had done just about $2 million, maybe a little bit more of revenue, a lifetime revenue. We'd hosted over 600 events throughout the country. We'd opened five pop-up stores. We had a brick and mortar in San Diego, California that we ran successfully and actually was um, profitable from day one, from the day we opened the doors there. And we had acquired over 50,000 customers that we directly marketed to as well online as well as having, you know, the magic numbers on social media of lots of followers and engaged uh, influencers that I spoke to before about over 400 of those. Um, and then we, over the lifetime of Grace by Garrett, we employed over 40 women. In March, I, th I would say we were probably at about 20 women at that point, including our store employees. So we had slimmed down a bit primarily because we had focused on really uh, increasing our online um, marketing efforts and so no longer required what we called reps throughout the country that were hosting a lot of these events. That's helpful. So you've built the company up. Um, it's still a relatively small business. How did you how did you value it? Like, what did you think it was worth? Did you have any sort of rules of thumb that you were working with or any, any sense of what it was worth when you first met Ron? Well, we thought it was worth a lot. Yeah, <laughs> we did. We did. We thought it was worth a lot. And I think, you know, What's there's, a lot? there's the tangible, I mean, I would say it, you know, I think what you do is four times revenue often when you start to, to look at valuation for a company. For, for um, what kind so for, so, for, apparel, for yeah, apparel. I was just going to say, let's, let's yeah. be specific because that would be very different for, for a lot of companies. Uh, yeah, right. For a branded, for, for branded, yes. not distribution apparel, but branded apparel. Yeah, for sure. It's a good, good, healthy multiple. So yep. you figured four times revenue for branded apparel. Correct. Yep. Got it. Got it. Got it. And, and that's really kind of what you had in your mind. So how did that, how did that start to come up in your conversations with Ron? I mean, did Ron present you with an offer letter or did you guys say, look, you know, this is our number. How did you guys work through that conversation? Oh no, well, I, I went after it. <laughs> right. In the beginning, we talked to Ron about an opportunity and we got pretty close and then the deal fell apart. Why? And because we felt out that we brought something to the table that they didn't have. He said, he's a man running an apparel company. He said, well, we have a women's line. And what do we need another women's line for? And was ready to walk away. But then Kate woke up one morning, called me and said, you know what? Hailey needs us. They made a mistake. So she called him again and asked for another meeting. And then we closed that deal within a month. 
Yeah, and the deal was different in the sense that we were initially pitching um, that they would acquire Grace by Grit and we would run it as a separate entity to Hylete. So um, Hylete has been positioning itself to potentially IPO in 2019. And so in that process, obviously acquiring other brands makes it more attractive to IPO, right? You have the ability to acquire and run other brands um, would be a more attractive company to obviously invest in and to go public. Well, that was what we were going for was saying, we're going to keep Grace by Grid as it is because we have this extremely loyal customer base and we just need more capital to really bring it to the next level. And we need the machine that Hylete was running with understanding how to be digitally native, how to speak directly um, and how to work sort of that online momentum that they had. Um, but that was unappealing to them because they felt it would take their eye off of um, what you know their core focus was, which was their business of Hylete. And so so the second attempt was, you know, we don't we don't need to keep the name graced by grit, but I think you should acquire um, the brand, the assets of the brand and the employees of the brand that know how to run this business for women and know how to speak to women and know how to create products for women. And that's where it became much more attractive to him. So they bought this, the assets of the company. And so what, what did you deem to be the assets of the company, the brand, the, the, the stock, the, uh, the customers, customer the inventory, right. the designs, the patterns, uh, the people, the branding, the trademarks that we had done, the website, uh, all the social media followers that were there. Um, yeah, there was a laundry list of things that we considered the assets. And and did you did you talk to uh, any sort of uh, financial advisors, or were you aware of the tax implications of of selling your assets versus your shares or stock in a company? We were fortunate enough, Kimberly's husband, um, Jim Cacavo is in private equity and has done a few of these transactions in his lifetime. And so we were fortunate enough to work with him. I worked with him closely during this, um, during the uh, negotiation with Ron to speak to all of that and to really understand it fully and to know, you know, where we could you know, where we could compromise on things and where we couldn't. Um, and so that was, that was a game changer for me, obviously, and not having to rely on somebody that we didn't necessarily know or trust or didn't, we weren't sure if they had the right experience. We knew that Kimberly's husband did have this experience and that he would guide us in the right direction. Yeah, that's, that's super helpful. Let me just talk directly to my listeners and just let you know that there's, there's some, some, some knock on effects of whether you're, you're you're acquired for stock, or you're, you're the acquirer is buying your stock, or your assets. Uh, talk to your advisor about it. It's uh, it, it can you know depending on the structure, it can have some material impact. So it's not just a word <laughs> on the share purchase agreement or the the asset purchase agreement. It it's got some knock on effects, and it sounds like you guys did a great job of sort of fleshing that out. Um, so you're at four times revenue as is the kind of number you started the process with. I mean, did did Ron give you a sense of what he thought? like an apparel digitally native apparel company should trade at in terms of multiple of revenue? Did he have a kind of a, a counter number in his mind? 
No, we were pretty close actually with what the yes. number was. We were, we, I think we were off by just a very little amount and compromised right in the middle of that. So fortunately, the way that Ron has raised capital for Hylete has been similar in one way that we raised, which was through Regulation A. So we were able to raise money through um, Regulation A+, which allows anyone, whether they're a credit investor or not a credit investor, to invest in a company. And Ron had actually created a platform on the Hylete website that allows you to invest right then and there. We actually used Start Engine to raise capital for ourselves and, and had some success with it. Ron has had a lot of success with it for Hylete. We just closed our seventh round of Regulation A-plus fundraising and have raised over $8 million. I think the last day of our close, we raised about $250,000 alone. So it's been extremely successful. And the beauty of raising capital that way is that your customers and your investors are what we call our investors now, so mm -hmm. that they are the people that are out there that are really on the ground advocating for the business, you know, talking about the business. And right now, Hylete has over 4,000 investors. We had over 250 investors when we did it. And so those people are really your troops on the ground that are wanting people to go to the website. You know, obviously they're, they're, they receive perks as investors, which incentivizes them, you know, to, um, to buy the product and to continue to market the product, but knowing that their shares will be worth something someday and obviously wanting that success to happen is what motivates a lot of these people too. And where they regularly couldn't actually maybe invest in a business previously, this is a huge opportunity for people to be able to be part of a brand that can be very successful. What was the name of that platform? You called it Start Engine? Am I getting that right? Start Engine. Yes. There are many platforms. That was one of the first platforms that was doing the Regulation A funding. So we used them and uh, Hylete had used them also. So it was good because we both understood the funding that uh, each of our companies had gone through. Great. So there's there was some commonality there for sure. So you go yeah. through the, the process. What currency did, 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 I mean, did Ron write a check to you guys for four times revenue or how did, how, how did that go? It was stock. Yeah, no, he, there was no check. There was no cash uh, acquisition. It was a stock acquisition, an asset acquisition. So there was stock that was given. Um, and obviously with Hylete looking to go public, that could be uh, very lucrative for those that have invested in Graced by Grit, which are now obviously looking to the success of Hylete to be able to liquidate that investment. And that's that That will be your liquidity, essentially, if that were to happen. Correct. If you guys liquidity. Yes. And and are there holdbacks? Do, do you have to hold the high lead stock for a period of time? Yes, yes, there will be. And I, you know, I'm not sure that we can disclose all of that, right, but there definitely will be hold holdbacks. And, you know, I'm not as sophisticated in terms of going public as to talk to it. I don't want to say anything wrong, but my understanding of it is, you know, obviously that holdback would make sense because you don't want anyone that, especially with 4,000 investors, the day that the stock goes public for them to all sell, you want to build that up so that the share price is higher and higher and you sell and it is lucrative for everybody and it makes sense. How did you broach the topic of the sale of your company with your employees? These, I think, 20 women you mentioned that were obviously passionate believers in the brand. That was hard. I, the women had watched us 
try to raise money. And, you know, we had all shared how difficult it is for women to raise money in the capital markets. It's extremely difficult. And so they saw the difficulty for women raising money. They were all fans of the Hylete brand. It also was a, a San Diego, Solana Beach based brand. So many of them, uh, their husbands were wearing it. And I think our employees on the whole were very excited about combining brands just because the, uh, the way the companies ran was so similar. Yeah, there was the culturally, the companies are very similar. And I think also for our employees, it was a sense of relief. I think once they, they found out that we were in conversations because it's stressful. It's stressful when you're a business that's trying to raise money and the answer is no often, (laughs) more often than it's yes. And for us in particular, um, that was really frustrating and it's stressful and you're watching every single penny. And there's so many things that you want to be able to do if you had the capital to do it, that you're just constrained by that and you can't. And so they knew it would be an incredible opportunity to be able to, to create product that really could get out there to the masses and that the message could continue to be there. What message did you get from investors when you tried to raise money? Like, why did people say no? Uh, Well, there were a few reasons. One, sadly, is that we're women entrepreneurs. Men, uh, the investment community does not invest in female entrepreneurs. It's just a fact. The second uh, message, though, was that we really needed to have uh, 10 to $13 million in annual revenue to get a sizable investment. The types of investors we were looking at said, okay, you'll do $2 million in 2018. Is that enough of a revenue um, goal for our customers? If you were doing 10 to $13 million in revenue, Absolutely. And it was actually one of those investors called us one night, coincidentally, with uh, us running into Braun at the Roth conference and said, oh, my gosh, I just had an idea. He had it at like four in the morning. He said, have you heard of Hylete? That would be a phenomenal partner for you. And as it turns out, it was. I mean, the the combination of the companies was so great. It wasn't like we had different corporate cultures, a different way to raise money, even in a different uh, market. We were in the same market. We both agreed on how to build a company and we agreed on how to raise the money. So it was just a perfect match where the, um, where the similar, uh, where there were some dissimilarities were in our supply chain because we were making things in the U.S., it was very quick. We were able to produce products within, you know, sometimes five weeks from when we thought of the product to when we were selling the product. Our manufacturers were a 20-minute drive. Uh, Ron's company is has a longer supply chain. And so that was a little difficult for us to get used to in the beginning. Oh, particularly for Kate, because she stayed with the company. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the turnover is much slower in terms of conception to actually come, go to market. So it was definitely a frustration of mine as I've joined the team. But the beauty is we have these relationships with local factories. So we actually were able to take a lot of the designs that Grace by Grit had been so successful with and immediately do a small run at the local factories to get them onto the High Leap website and see how they sold. And fortunately, my gut was right that they would sell and they did. And so now we're doing bigger production runs and we're, you know, I'm pushing them to really explore using more local factories um, to, especially as they test new products, because you can go low quantities versus having to go overseas. Obviously it takes less time. We already have the patterns here. So there's a lot of advantage to that. Yeah. And it feels right. It feels great to be able to do that. And when you talk about a carbon footprint as a brand, it obviously makes our carbon footprint smaller when it's Uh, local. For sure. How did you tell customers that you had been acquired by Hylite. We were very transparent the minute the acquisition, the minute we signed the term sheet and it looked like it was a go, we sent an email, we did a Facebook live, we sent a, uh, we did a Facebook post, an Instagram post, um, a LinkedIn article, and we we talked about what was happening so that it was not a surprise when it closed in June. What was uh, customer we, reaction like? Um, There was a lot of congratulations. There was some disappointment, I think, for people that were concerned that it would lose the the appeal that had drawn them in, which was that it was women founded and women run. Um, And, you know, that we were able to hopefully, I think, um, help with turning Graced by Grit, the name Graced by Grit actually has been turned now into a foundation. So what we I've been working really hard on right now is, and we haven't received federal approval yet, but um, Graced by Grit Foundation will be offering scholarships to young women athletic and academic scholarships to young women. And that funding will actually come from the highly women's line. So 1% of all of the highly women products that are sold go back to the foundation. And so it's even actually more exciting in a sense, because we're able to give back in a much bigger way. And that's such a huge piece of what you know, the ethos of our brand was, it was the grace, it was the grit and it was the give. We never, you know, didn't offer a fit shop or a trunk show hostess an opportunity to have her event where some portion of the sales went back to a foundation or a charity that she was passionate about. Anytime somebody reached out to us to partner that was a charity or foundation and and asked for a discount or uh, not a discount code, excuse me, a code to be applied to their community where they knew that 20% would go back, we made it applicable on the website. So we were really, really passionate of the give back part part of our brand. And now we've gotten to explode that by being here because the revenue is that much greater. So there's going to be more of an impact that way. I'd love to explore your own decision-making and the dynamic that you guys went through. Uh, You revealed earlier that there's an age gap between the two of you. Um, And it sounds like, Kate, you stay, you have stayed and are now an executive at Hylite. And Kimberly, you you chose not to. Um, You know, that can be for founders a really delicate decision. Some founders who stay with the acquirer feel like they've been given the short stick in in a way because the other one gets to ride off into the sunset and do something else. Did you guys, how did you guys work through those sort of conversations? Did you have those sorts of conversations about what's there? And yeah. Yes. 
Yes, we did. And the good thing is we still watch sunset together. <laughs> exactly. No, okay, us, rub it in, rub it in. For us, it made a lot of sense because uh, Kate is at a different point in her career than I was. And Kate is an unbelievable executive. And so is Ron. And together, they are a great team. And um, I was at a different point in my career. I'd already had some of those successes. And it just, it made sense. It made sense. We're still, uh, we're still a team. We just wrote a book together and Ron is incredible. And I think Kate is rising to the occasion and she's just getting better, better. Yeah, it's been, it's been actually, it feels serendipitous, not only in obviously running into Ron and the acquisition happening the way it did, but I think for both of us, we were ready for this next point of our careers and our life. And for me, being able to take everything I've learned over the last six years and apply it to this business, remembering not to make the same mistakes, following my gut and hopefully taking Hylit to really the next level and being a participant in that, but also taking that narrative about women that I was am incredibly passionate about the storytelling piece and being able to use that here and being able to really make a difference. I'm the first female executive on their team. I'm the first woman to sit at that manager's meeting every single week. And I've really chosen to lean into that, as Cheryl Sandberg says, and um, to really go for it here. And I think, you know, there's so much power that comes with that. And especially for the women that were here as a male dominated brand, not that anyone wasn't wanting to hear what they had to say, but in a lot of ways, when you bring a woman in that is a leader, it's a platform for them to be heard. And I think I've opened up that opportunity where now a little do little does Ron want to hear it maybe sometimes, but few people, women feel like they have more of a voice now at the table too. Yeah. Right. I want- and I wonder if men feel less attracted to the Hylite brand because women are such a dominant part of your business. Like, I wonder, do, do you worry or does Ron or, or the Hylite team as an executive team, Kate, do you worry that that being so pro-women and so focused on women's issues that it might dilute what Hylite the, the the brand affection that, that frankly men have for high lead. Is, is that a consideration? Do you guys talk about that around the boardroom table? It's It's been a conversation for sure. Do I feel that the customer is turned off? No, not at all. I think the, the customer is progressive, is um, educated, is very similar to the women that we served. In fact, I think many of them are the husbands or partners of our customer. And so if they're listening to their wives and partners at home, they're hearing the same rhetoric. So I don't think that's different. And I think that even the executive team here was craving having that diversity, you know, obviously external diversity, but, you know, internal intelligent diversity is also something that we talk a lot about here too. And that being a core part of the brand um, and what we represent, we have an enormous customer base of uh, that are in the service, uh, which is, you know, incredible for us to be able to cater to those people and to be able to highlight those people on our website. And that that is definitely di- a little bit different. But I think when you talk about grit and you talk about what that means, we can all identify with that. And their customer certainly identifies with that piece of what 
Graced by Grit was representing. And so I think there's a lot of crossover. And I also think, you know, which I spoke to before, that conversation and that narrative that's happening for women now is a conversation that companies that want to succeed need to have. And so I think, you know, there's some of a somewhat of a relief to say, okay, well, now we're doing this. And we're not just saying we want to, but we are doing. We're, we're doing what we said we wanted to do. And there's a lot of beauty in that. That doesn't mean that it doesn't come with some tough conversations, you know, having men designing women's products previously and now having me here means that I'm going to be much more passionate about it. And I will, you know, I will put my foot down when I don't feel like something's right. And I have done that, but that's actually been welcomed in a lot of ways because, you know, I'm not trying to design for a man. I don't know how things fit for you. I don't know how your cardigan fits on your shoulders (laughs) as well as you do. And you don't know how I want my butt to look in spandex. So I think, you know, we all have to come Uh, with our points of view and be heard. And I definitely feel like there's a platform here. I think I look pretty, I think I look pretty good in my cardigan just just (laughs) for the record. (laughs) I love that. Well, oh, she geez. looks great in her spandex. I'm sure too. it's all good. <laughs> but, you <laughs> know, just you. to add one yeah. more thing um, about Hylit and the integration of the brands, Hylit was built on a foundation of integrity and we fit. Yep. Yeah. Are you crying, Kimberly? I, no, I I'm like not. But I, oh, okay. I should because it is. I mean, it was just so beautiful the way the companies came together. And Ron, the the founder of Hylite, I mean, has always built this business with the highest integrity and the goal to create clothing of the highest quality, which was the same as Grace by Grit. So the the integration was pretty seamless. And then if you add the quality of employees from Grace by Grit that joined the Hylite team, I think it is a stronger company for the integration. Our um, our employees were absolutely phenomenal. They were women who had uh, really, uh, you know, grown up in this startup, and some of them had started in a part-time capacity. You know, while they were getting degrees or different phases of their life and have made this their career and I think are a tremendous asset to highly Great. Tell me, uh, you know, we don't have a lot of time left, but I, I do want to make sure we touch on the book briefly. Uh, this is coming out. It's, it's, I think it's out now, in fact. Um, tell me briefly what it is and where people can get it. We well, can get it on Amazon. Right now, it is available in Kindle and the ebook. We're in the soft launch um, part. We will be have the uh, hard copies will be out in 2019. But it's a book. It's a guide for women who want to start businesses. It's Grace by Grit, the entrepreneurial, uh, the guide for entrepreneurial women to start businesses with power, passion, and purpose. And it it really helps women get through some of the roadblocks as they're starting businesses. Yeah, and it shares a lot of actually the stories of women that we've met along the way that emulate the qualities and uh, character and integrity that we feel it takes to start a business that is successful. Whatever that definition of success is uh, for you when you're starting a business or even you're starting a nonprofit or you want to run a great charity event, you know, you can, there's so many takeaways from this book that are inspirational and also lessons learned, obviously, from Kimberly and I and what, what not to do um, and, you know, how we feel in terms of what, what makes a brand successful. 
The book is called Grace by Grit. It's available on Amazon. Kate and Kimberly, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.